So this morning, church, we begin or we continue our series that we began last week, as you can see on the screens, the Christmas story of redemption. And in this series, we are looking at Jesus' coming at Christmas, being born a baby, but we're doing it in the context of mainly looking at the overarching story of the whole Bible and of our universe, which is often called the story of redemption. And last week, we began at the very beginning with creation. And as a quick summary, last week we saw that God created the universe and us in it for his glory. And we talked about how all that means is that God created this world and the universe so that who he is in his goodness and wisdom and creativity and love and power so that who God is could be seen and felt and experienced. And we saw that that's true of creation as a whole and it's also true of God's plan of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which he had even before creation. Because the gospel above everything else shows what our God is really like. So that was last week. That brings us now to this week. And now for this week, we continue in the story where we left off. So God created the world for his glory, to show forth his goodness and love. But now, leading us to this week, perhaps you were hearing all that last week, and you were thinking that it all sounds nice, but maybe you were also thinking that at first, it sounds kind of naive. And here's, here's what I mean. Perhaps you were feeling last week that all this talk about God's glory and the world created for God's glory and showing forth love and creativity and goodness sounds good and maybe you're thinking it may be true, but also, at the same time, perhaps you were feeling that it sounds a little idealistic or maybe a little inconsistent with what we experience day in and day out. And I bring that up because now, as we transition in the story of the Bible from the historical creation to the historical fall this morning, this is a huge point for us to consider right away. And that's because after hearing everything last week about God's purpose and creation and the goodness of the world and God's glory, we should feel that something's off. We should feel that, yes, our world and our lives here are, are, have creativity and love and goodness in them, and we love those things, but they are also filled with the opposites as well. Because as we all know all too well, our lives and our world are not just filled with goodness and love, but sadness, sickness, confusion, anxieties, fears, uncertainties, Loneliness, disease, natural disasters, broken relationships, abuse, pain, and the list could go on. And then, to top it all off, we have to add to the fact that our lives end as we watch those we love die and then we ourselves die. And, and so with all that said, you could have been feeling last week all this talk about God's glory and goodness and love is missing something. Or perhaps you were even thinking, sure, we can say that the world was created for God's glory, but that doesn't seem to be the world I live in. And again, I do think that we need to feel that to a degree sometimes, church, because if we don't, then our faith in Christ might not apply to our real lives. It could just become a facade that we put on on Sunday mornings. 
But that's the dilemma we're in. We know that on the one hand, the world is full of goodness and love and happiness and we each crave those things. But then on the other hand, we also live in a world where things are really off, where there's sorrow and cruelty and anxiety and sickness and natural disasters and disease, where we feel an ache for more and where all of our lives end in death. And therefore, the question becomes, why is this? Why is this the case? And why do we even care that this is the case? And that's where this really important story of the Bible and of history of our universe comes in. And classically, we call it the fall. The fall. And all the fall is talking about is while last week is totally still true, meaning God did create the world as a theater for his glory, what's also true is that there was really a point in the history of this universe where what the Bible calls sin or unrighteousness, things aren't right or wrong or hurt, entered into this creation and where things really did change. Now to be clear from the outset, this does not negate what we talked about last week about God's plan for the gospel even before creation. Because this sin entering creation did not take our God by surprise. He knew it would happen and he even, in a sense, planned for it to happen. But still, in the story of the Bible and of our universe, what we see when this fall happens is that sin enters and it isn't part of God's original creation design. And instead, perhaps the best way to think about sin is it, like, is it being like a parasite entering into God's good creation. Because if you really think about it, sin in itself doesn't really exist on its own right. Instead, sin is always taking something God created good and twisting it. Right? Sin takes good things like God creating us in his image for community and twists communities and groups and nations to be un- oppressing and unloving towards others. Or or sin takes things like human creativity, which God created in us, and and it twists creativity to all of a sudden make people conniving and scheming for selfish purposes and hurting others. Or, Or sin takes good things like relationships and food and fun and sex and twists them to be abused, and the list could go on. But that's what we're about to see happen here at the fall. Creation is still good in itself, church, and for God's glory, but now here in Genesis 3, sin enters. And with it, realities like sorrow, suffering, and death come into our world, and they have been here ever since. But to to give a glimpse into later in our message, we should know that they won't be here forever. That brings us finally to our passage. So we were looking at the fall this morning. As we'll do so, we're going to have two simple sections. Two simple sections. Very simply, first, we'll spend most of our time looking at the fall here in Genesis 3. And then second, we'll see how Jesus and Christmas relate to the fall in the New Testament. So first, the fall in Genesis. And then second, Jesus and Christmas in relation to the fall. With all that said, let's now begin our first section and see the fall here in Genesis 3. And for this, we will be covering all of verses 1 through 21, but to do so, we're going to take the story step by step, reading apart, making some comments, and then moving on. And we'll begin just in verse 1, and in fact, just in the first half of verse 1, because this is setting the scene. So look down at your Bibles, Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent 
was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So as a reminder, this is Genesis chapter 3. And remember, in Genesis 1 and 2, God created the world very good. But now here, all of a sudden, in Genesis 3, we see this strange intro about a crafty serpent coming in. And we could spend a long time on this, but two quick things about the details about the serpent before we move on. Two quick things. And the first is that we really need to take into account that this is what the Bible is saying here. And what I mean is that a story like this, let's be honest, about a serpent talking (laughs) may sound strange to us. And it should sound strange to us, but that shouldn't lead us to think that this didn't happen. Because remember, the the Bible talks about other things that are strange as well that we believe really happened, like rivers being split apart, or the fact that we believe the living God decided to become a human being and die and rise. And so it may seem strange that a snake here is talking and lying, and it is strange, but we shouldn't go and say that this didn't happen. I mean, God just created the universe (laughs) in the last two chapters. So, So if God decided to allow a serpent to be possessed and to speak, then he can do what he wants, and it did happen. So that's the first thing here. But then second, along with this, we need to see here that there's really evil behind what's going on here. And it's that that's the most important right here in this history, in this story. Now, now how this evil entered the garden here, people speculate. But in Genesis 3, and really elsewhere in the Bible, God doesn't tell us much about what happened behind the scenes here. Instead, we do know that angels are real, and that clearly there was some sort of angelic fall before the human fall. And we know that here in Genesis 3, one of those angels who the Bible later will call Satan is trying to convince humans to follow in his footsteps of rebellion against God. And so we know all that. But besides all that, we don't know much. And importantly, God apparently doesn't think we need to know much. Instead, what's important here is that what we're about to see is evil, it's real, and Adam and Eve are about to be tempted by it. Let's continue on in verse 1. And we're going to read all the way now through verse 6. Verse 6. And we're going to see what happened. So we're going to read those verses now, picking up in verse 1. The serpent said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of the tree, of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. So there's a lot in there. But for our our sakes this morning, notice first how this conversation in the fall all begins in that second half of verse 1. It's fascinating. And so, think of it this way. This is the first instance of sin and rebellion against God in the whole Bible and in literally the whole story of our created universe. And how does it start? Quote, did God actually say? And that sets the stage for the fall. And seriously, we could, we could spend our whole time just on that this morning, but I hope you see that this literally is the way evil first entered our universe. 
It started with a subtle denying of God's words. Let me say that again. It all started with a subtle denying of God's words. And as an application to us, this is yet another reason why we must care about God's word and what God actually says above all else. And I really want to bring this home because so often, if you've grown up in a Bible-believing church or if you've been part of a church like this for a while, we can get so used to hearing this that subtly we can start to think that, sure, the, the words of the Bible are important, but, but come on, let's not get carried away. Being that intensely focused on the Bible isn't that important. But in God's word, what God really says is that important. Because again, see it for yourself. The first hint of any sort of sin in the Bible is, did God actually say? And in context, this is a big deal because thus far, God created everything very good. And he created everything for Adam and Eve's good. And so anything he has said to them thus far is for their good. And the same is true for us today. Anything God says to us is ultimately for our good. But the essence of sin here in Genesis 3 and still for us today is saying, sure, God, I know you said that, but I want this. Or it's saying, yeah, yeah, I'll listen to you, God, but, but I also want to do it my way. And so that's how it starts. It's about God's word. But then as you see the story unfolds from here and to rehash what happened to begin in verses two and three, the woman answers the snake. And interestingly, Eve answers correctly to a degree, but then she adds to God's word, saying that God said that they can't touch the tree, which God never said. And so Eve adds a little bit to God's word. And then in verse four comes the serpent's just straight out lie saying that they won't die. And that is a lie because as soon as they ate, they did die first spiritually and eventually physically. And then in verse five comes the enticement where the, the serpent is trying to allure them not to just be creatures, but to be like God. And that's really the root of all sin, wanting to yourself to be God. Which finally and sadly leads to verse six where Adam and Eve go for it. And why do they do it? Verse six in the middle, because they saw that the tree was to be desired and to make one wise. And so instead of trusting in God and what God says and God's love and goodness, Adam and Eve decide to take it upon themselves to find their own happiness apart from God, their own wisdom. They relied on themselves instead of God and God's word and sin enters the universe. And so that's really in history how sin entered our world. This isn't a fairy tale. This sets the stage for all of world history. And as a quick personal application for all of us here before we move on, as all of us in this room are sinners, I hope we know that for each and every one of us, what sin is in many ways is essentially just this story being repeated over and over in our lives. <laughs> Because this is sin in a nutshell, isn't it? Instead of trusting in God and his word and his goodness and love, what we do when we sin is we essentially want to do things our own way. We want to do things that we think will make us feel good or work, ignoring God and especially ignoring God's word. And then often because of this, like we're about to see in verse seven, we feel guilt and shame. Which now leads us to see the result of all of that. And for now, for this, we're going to read all of verses 7 through 13. And as we do so, as we hear this, this history, what happened, just notice how things start to unravel. 
So this is Genesis 3, verses 7 through 13. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, but I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So here we see the awful results of the fall just beginning. And as we analyze what's here, we can see four relationships that became broken by the fall. Four relationships. And these really are a helpful way to summarize what really happened in our world as a result of the fall. Four relationships. And the first broken relationship is the one we see in verses 8 through 10 because there God asks where Adam and Eve are. He's walking in the cool of the garden and they hide. And this shows us that at the fall, the relationship between God and humanity was broken. And that's the foundational thing that we know happened at the fall. Our relationship with God himself became ruptured. And as we know, this is also the foundational thing that Jesus came to restore in the gospel. So that's the first relationship that was broken. We can call it our vertical relationship with our creator God. But then for the second relationship that was broken, look again at verse 10 at the end because there Adam says, I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And so here we see the second relationship that was broken and it's our internal relationship within ourselves. Because in verse 7 and now here in verse 10, for the first time, we see in created human beings this inward fear and shame. And so thus far, we have a vertical relationship with God. We have our inward relationship with ourselves. But now third, for the third relationship, look again at verse 12. We'll read it again. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. So now third, we see how our relationship between other people, our relationships with other people became broken. Because amazingly, Adam just immediately starts blaming his beloved Eve. And so this happened at the fall as well. Not only was our relationship with God ruptured, not only did we become more internally broken, but now our horizontal relationships with other people became affected as well. Which finally leads to the fourth and final broken relationship as a result of the fall. This is hinted at at verse 13, but it comes up later more explicitly when the ground is cursed. And that's our relationship with God's creation as a whole. And if you think about it, from this fourth and final ruptured relationship comes the lack of unity we now have with nature, comes our difficulty in work, and even comes natural disasters and diseases and things like food and water shortages. And so that's the four broken relationships and the result of the fall. And when you think about it, this really is what's messed up in our world. <laughs> First, we aren't right with God anymore on our own because of our sin, and that's the biggest of all. But then also, we are internally broken. We have broken relationships with other people. And finally, the harmony that we were made to feel with God's creation is broken. We in this whole world were messed up. 
and as a quick but beautiful side note for you to consider more on your own, the gospel of Jesus Christ deals with all four of those relationships. It's a beautiful thing because the gospel isn't only about restoring our relationship with God, although of course and primarily, amen, it does, but the gospel also leads to more healing inside ourselves, more love with others, and eventually more harmony forevermore with this creation. But I actually encourage you on your own time to think about the implications about that more on your own. But that finally leads us to our last section here in Genesis 3. And now we're going to see God's response to all this. And in short, what we're about to see is God's going to declare a curse on the serpent, the woman, man, and even the ground. And, and, and this idea of curse may sound strange to us in our modern ears, but we have to remember what just happened in history is a really big deal. It's evil. And God is perfectly good and wise and just. And so seeing what we're about to see, this is a right relationship from the creator God. So for this, let's now look down at verses 14 through 21. 14 through 21. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. And on your belly you shall go and eat dust and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Curse is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your faith you shall face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So to see what these curses mean, we'll look at them from last to first, so starting with Adam's. So to begin first, as for Adam, as you may know, God now is clear that nature is broken, and Adam's work, instead of being a, just a harmonious joy, now will be especially difficult. And then second, as for the woman's curse, she then is given extreme pain in childbearing, and her relationship with the man becomes uniquely broken. And we could spend more time on those another time, but for our sakes this morning, I want us actually to focus most on the curse that God gives the serpent. And this is found in verses 14 to 15. This is really interesting because first, as you can see in just in verse 14, God curses the snake itself in a sense. And it seems here that God and his providence seem to set it up in such a way where we're supposed to look at the snake and see a symbol of the curse. As a snake slithers on the grounds and eats dust and eating dust, just so you know, elsewhere in the Bible is symbolic of being defeated. So that's verse 14, but that's not the most important part here. Instead, verse 15 is the most important part of all of this, and arguably it's the most important verse in this whole chapter. And this verse has been seen for many years to be such an important verse that it's been given a name. It's become known as, quote, the proto-evangelium. Proto-evangelium. Now, that is not a word you need to remember. <laughs> But all it means is proto is the Greek word for first, comes from first, and evangelium, meaning gospel. 
And so first gospel, and it's been given that name because this is the first mention of the gospel in the whole Bible. And it's quite amazing. And I want you to see it for yourself. So first, in verse 15, as you can see, God puts enmity between the serpent and the woman. And specifically, between your offspring serpent and her offspring. And and that in itself is a little weird. (laughs) Because if you think about it, it makes sense for the woman to have have offspring, but the serpent? (laughs) But it's said here that the serpent will have offspring. And so it's implied here that people will follow in the way of the serpent. That then leads to the second half of verse 15. And this is where it's really clear that this is the first mention of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's also a bit strange in context, showing that this is clearly inspired by God all the way back at the beginning. So notice the first half of verse 15, as we just said, is about a bunch of people, offspring. But now here, in the second half of verse 15, you can see it yourself. It becomes about one person. It becomes singular It's not about many offspring, but it's about a he. And it's strange. And what does this he do? Quote, he shall bruise your head, serpent, and you shall bruise his heel. And so that's poetry. But the picture is clear. This he, coming from the offspring of Eve, Eve, who in this context, remember, is the mother of all living in the midst of all the sin and death, he is going to be bruised by the serpent, having a figurative bruised heel. But in response, he's going to bruise the serpent's head. (laughs) Meaning, he's going to give a final blow to this evil serpent. (laughs) And this is not us imposing the gospel onto Genesis. Because all scholars will point out that this is a really key verse in this whole book of Genesis. Because after this, the whole story of Genesis is built upon this verse. Because from here on out, we start to see the offspring of Eve who are trusting in the Lord. And that's carried on by Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph all the way to Moses and the people of Israel. And so this verse really sets the stage for the whole Old Testament. But then on the other hand, we also start to see from here on out those following in the way of the serpent. But for the point of us here this morning is that here in Genesis 3, we need to know that the fall was always leading somewhere. That it was always setting the stage for the whole Bible. And where was the fall always leading? To this he who God promised right away that he would come and crush this ancient serpent and this evil that was just brought into the world. (laughs) Or think about it this way. Here at the fall, when in our history real sin and sorrow and hurt and pain and death entered our world, yes, everything changed. And we have been dealing with the consequences ever since. And yes, God took it really seriously as he should have. And yes, we are all now individually sinners ourselves, but also here at the fall, as soon as it happened, God looked evil in the face in Genesis 3.15, and said, Serpent, you have brought evil into this universe, and you have hurt this world, and you will hurt this him in the future. But in the end, serpent, this evil that you brought in will be defeated, because he is going to crush you. 
which finally leads us to Jesus and Christmas in the New Testament. And this won't be as long because I'm sure you already know where this is going. <laughs> but now to see how this connects to Jesus and Christmas, we'll go to two places together in the New Testament. One main passage and then one verse as we close. But as for the main passage, you can see in your bulletin, now turn with me to Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2. This will be towards the, almost the very back of your Bible, especially when we're just in Genesis. Hebrews 2. And we're going to be in verses 14 through 17. Hebrews 2, 14 through 17. Here we will see the author of Hebrews connect the fall to Jesus' coming at Christmas, if you will. So we're going to read verses 14 through 17, but we'll start with just verses 14 and 15. Just verses 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, that's Jesus, himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So as you can see, this is talking about Jesus, and we can say it's specifically talking about Christmas, because notice it's talking about how Jesus, quote, partook of the same things, meaning flesh and blood. Meaning our God genuinely, really became a human being, which happened at Christmas, which we call theologically the incarnation. But importantly, why did he do this? Why did Christmas happen according to the author of Hebrews here? Well, so that Jesus could destroy the devil. So that he could destroy the one who has the power of death. So that he could destroy the one who made people slaves of sin and death, which is exactly what happened in the fall. Which leads us to verses 16 and 17. And now we're going to see how Jesus specifically did this. We'll read those now. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. <laughs> so hopefully you're tracking. You notice there in verse 16, we see that talk about offspring. So again, this brings us back to God's plan all the way back in Genesis 3 because God's plan has always been to save his people from the offspring of Eve, the offspring of Abraham. And we know from the New Testament, it's very clear that we become part of this offspring by faith in Jesus Christ alone. But the question still is, but how? How does this incarnate God, Jesus, defeat the devil? And that's where verse 17 comes in because there it's clear that Jesus does this by becoming like us in every respect becoming a genuine human being, becoming our high priest, and dying for us, for the sins of the people. He became our propitiation, which just means that Jesus really paid the price, died in the place of his people's specific sins, and he took the wrath of God that we deserve because of those sins. And so now that he did that, our sins are gone. We're forgiven. We're free. We're back on God's side. All because this he, Jesus, was bruised for us while the serpent was crushed. <laughs> Which leads us to conclude with one last verse. And here Christmas is not explicitly talked about, but there's a reference to Satan being crushed in Genesis 3. So, and it's a fascinating text. For this, let's go to Romans 16. Romans 16. You see it in your bulletin again. Romans 16, verse 20. Should be about uh, 60 pages to the left in your Bible if you're still in Hebrews. Romans 16, verse 20. 
And as you can see, this is in Romans 16. This is written by Paul at the end of a very long letter to this church in Rome. And as you'll see, this was meant to be a real encouragement to that church as the letter was coming to an end. And therefore, brothers and sisters, I hope this verse is a real encouragement to us as we think about all these things like sin and sorrow and death and now as our message is coming to a close. So look down to your Bibles, Romans 16, verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So this is a fascinating verse. So to begin, notice here that God is called the God of peace. That's what Paul decided to call him. The God of Shalom, the God who makes peace. But also notice here what God does here to bring that peace. And what is it? Well, he's finally and forever crushing that ancient serpent Satan. And all of that makes sense. But now with that said, notice one final important point on this verse. And to see this, ask yourself, who here, along with God, technically is going to crush the serpent? And the answer is us. Us. Christians. The serpent is going to be crushed under our feet. And, and now that's amazing, because let's be honest, we're not strong enough to do that. We can't defeat Satan on our own. And this is especially true as we need to know, especially as with this part of our message, we've been talking about this for a while, but we need to know that this talk about Satan and real demonic forces and spiritual warfare isn't just religious talk. And spiritual warfare is totally real. We know that from Genesis 3, and we know it elsewhere in the Bible too, like Ephesians 6, where we probably know that we're told that we don't ultimately battle against other people, but against real demonic Forces, personalities, forces that hate Jesus, that hate God's word, that hate God's church, that hate you and I. And, and so we need to know that on our own, we can't crush this evil in the serpent. It'll crush us. So the question is, how can this crushing under our feet happen? And this is where the full picture of the gospel comes in. Because the truth is, it's not just religious talk, the truth is, as we saw in Genesis 3, and then we saw in Hebrews 2, it is Jesus who defeats the serpent. But amazingly, what's also true is that in the gospel, we're in Christ. We're connected to Jesus. And so the beautiful thing is, it's not just that Jesus will finally and forever defeat evil, but also that we, in connection with Jesus, will do so as well. We win over evil in Jesus. <laughs> I want you to know, as a side note, that's really what the whole book of Revelation is about. Or to say it another way, we will be part church of the final victorious snuffing of evil out of this universe. We will be part of it one day when Jesus comes back and the devil is crushed once and for all under Jesus' feet and under our feet and on that day we will rejoice because we will be forever done with the evil, sin, sorrow, sickness, and death that the fall brought into our hearts and into our world in Genesis 3. So church, that's the, that's the fall and the story of redemption and how Jesus and Christmas relate to it. And personally for us then, I, I hope you see that all this means that for us who know Jesus, who are Christians, number one, we can still enjoy the goodness of this world because we know that God made it for his glory. 
But then number two, also we can be the people who are totally honest about our sins and sorrows and fears and the pain of this world. But then also finally, number three and most important, we should know that as we do those things, we really can have hope. Hope. And that's why if you want to think of it this way, the truth of creation and the truth of the fall along with the third truth of what Jesus did in the gospel all go hand in hand. Because ultimately, we as Christians know why the world is this way. We have the answer and we have such a unique hope. And it's not because we're so good (laughs) at all. It's not because we can be more moral than other people. That's not the point at all. Instead, it's because we know that the world was created good, that we're not right, that the world isn't right, but then also we know that in order to redeem the world, the creator God came. He was born a baby on Christmas. He became one of us. He lived a perfect life, and then he went to the cross to reverse the curse and defeat sin and the devil. And we know that as he did that for us 2,000 years ago, so also soon he's coming back. And then amazingly, In history, and this will happen, all of us who know Jesus will crush this parasite of evil and Satan under our feet and out of this universe forever and we will win in Christ and we will have peace with God, within ourselves, with one another, and with this creation forever. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.